Amen. Well, remain standing, please, and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're going to focus on those first 11 verses and address the parable that Jesus uses in order to excite and insight all of his disciples to be vigilant in prayer. And before we read those 11 or 13 verses, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, we come again to plead for your mercy, light, Lord, that you would come and minister to us, that you would correct any ignorance that we have as it relates to this topic of vigilance and diligence and prayer. Lord, that you would help us understand that as disciples of Christ, there are things that ought to be fruit fruit in our life. And Lord, we need to look for that fruit so that we might know we are true disciples of Jesus. Now, Lord, come and walk in our midst. Come and correct us and change us. Come and, Lord, lead us in the paths of righteousness and truth. And, Lord, give us encouragement and confidence. Build our faith, our hope, our love, Lord, so that we might be useful sons and daughters and servants of the living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna begin reading at verse one. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive our sins, and we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend who goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed, and I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. And he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. 
like most parables, there's a variety of interpretations that come when you uh, examine all the commentaries related to this, this particular parable. But there at least is among the what we might call the heavyweights um, that there is in this parable an exhortation, a, an incitement for disciples of Christ, for believers in God to be vigilant and persistent in prayer. Now, who is this parable for? Who should be listening to this sermon this morning with the utmost interest? Well, if you're here this morning and you have prayed and you've asked God um, for some good thing. Now, it could be something in your own life that you want to see destroyed, some sin in your life that you want to see conquered. That's a good thing, right? It could be your own personal knowledge to be expanded, that you want to be a man or a woman who understands the Bible, who is able to pick it up and read it um, with, with great value in your own life and even in the aid of helping others understand the Bible as well. To remedy ignorance, that's another good petition, isn't it? It could be any personal thing in your life. Maybe it's a physical ailment that's keeping you from pursuing something in your life that you think is good about the kingdom of God. That might be something that comes with age. It might be something that comes with uh, some providential circumstance where, there, where something happens and, and now there are uh, circumstances in your life related to you that are keeping you, at least in your own mind, from doing what you think God is calling you to do. Now, if you have beseeched the Lord and you have petitioned the Lord, to remedy those things or to overcome those things, and yet you have stopped praying because God has not answered your prayer in an acceptable time frame that you have deemed it needs to happen in. This, this sermon's for you. And I would say that this is possibly the majority of us, that we have at one time or another in our lives, prayed and sought after the Lord's face to answer our prayer and nothing. The pearly gates were more like iron gates. And it just seemed as if our prayers were bouncing off the ceiling and coming back to us. This prayer or this portion of the word of God is to overcome that. It's to remedy that. It's to, to incite us to a greater vigilance. And it does this by this parable of this annoying neighbor. There's no way around it. This person is annoying. And we'll look at that when the time comes. And... I think it's important to realize that Jesus uses this parable of an annoying neighbor 
to incite the disciples of Christ to be persistent in prayer. You be annoying. Just as this neighbor was annoying, so you be annoying when it comes to petitioning God for good things. Now, let's stop there. I don't want to go any further. Let's look at the text. It's important to understand the circumstance that Jesus uses this parable, and I hope that we can look at this, and I'm not going to begin to examine every detail of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. That's not the purpose, but I do want to go through the circumstance and, and highlight this so that when we do address the parable itself, it seems to, it, just, it fits. And we walk away with a greater understanding of why Luke put all of this together the way he did. Now we're going to look at, I'm going to break up these texts into three portions. The first portion is going to be the d- disciples example. We're going to look at the di- the disciples examples as we see right there in verse one, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. So we're going to look, we're going to, we're going to spend a little bit of time there recognizing that Jesus is the example of, of a prayer life for all disciples. And then the second part of the sermon, we're going to look at the disciples' model, which is the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer, but it's been designated the Lord's Prayer, taking on more, uh, refer to the Lord teaching it than receiving it. But it is the disciples' prayer. It's that model prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to use as they pray. And we'll just look at some of that prayer, highlight a few things, and then we're going to move on to the parable. And in the parable, we're going to see the disciples' encouragement. The disciples' encouragement. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you two things to look for in your life so that you have proper so that you know you have the proper encouragement when you pray. And we're going to, we'll dig that out of the parable itself, okay? Well, let's look at the disciples' example. Now, it's, it's clear, as I stated in the text reads, that Jesus was, had spent some time praying. And this was not uncommon at all. In fact, out of the gospel writers, Luke records more of these instances of Jesus praying than any other gospel writer. Now, I think for us here this morning and not going through all of these examples that Luke highlights for us in the gospel itself, but it's important to note that Jesus was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. 
Now, I highlight his humanity because it's in his humanity that he demonstrated his dependence upon his heavenly father. And that we should not shy away from recognizing that Jesus as a man was dependent upon his heavenly father. He was a man full of grace and truth, John says. Hebrews highlights that he was also a man that grew in stature, knowledge, and wisdom. He grew up into things that he should know and learn and be. And he learned how, if you will, to, he had to grow in his knowledge. He did not as an infant possess as a man, all of the knowledge that he would have as a 30-year-old man. He grew in those things. And there's probably three records of Jesus praying that highlights his dependence upon God. And the first one was his temptation. Jesus goes off into the wilderness to pray and fast. Now what happens at the end of that wilderness experience? His temptation. After his baptism, Jesus went off to prepare himself for this engagement with Satan. He wanted to be prepared. He prays up. So that when this encounter happens, he will be successful. There's the prayer at his transfiguration. Another important milestone in sort of the history of Jesus walking with his disciples. And then there is the one that most of us probably know If you were asked, well, what's one of the most significant prayers of Jesus? Most of you would probably say, well, it was at the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus goes and prays with three of his disciples before his crucifixion. Before his arrest. And of course, we are given a glimpse of that prayer where Jesus, I mean, Matthew records this sort of violent prayer encounter. Jesus throws himself on the ground, face down, pleading with his father. What? For strength. So that he might complete the task at hand. And of course, it's recorded that the uh, sweat, if you will, the agony, the, the, the stress of the moment was as drops of blood uh, coming off his forehead. Stressful. There are other opportunities. I mean, so those are significant moments in the life of Jesus. I think you would agree. But there were other times that Jesus prayed. He prayed at the, uh, the, right before the rising of Lazarus, did he not? I mean, here's a circumstance that lent itself for Jesus to highlight and magnify his ministry and his relationship with the Father, but also to the Father's glory in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. 
And there were other times he prayed. I think another significant time, at least in my own mind, it's been something that has struck me even in my own ministry, is that before Jesus chose the 12 disciples, what does the, what does the scriptures teach us? He went off to pray. And he spent that time in prayer before choosing the 12 disciples, for choosing the 12 that would walk with him. So what do we see about, what do we know, or what can we glean about Jesus' life as our example? Um, Number one, he was a man of prayer consistently, but he prayed in various circumstances. There were certain circumstances that lent itself for Hey, this is a great time to pray. The choosing of the 12 disciples, the rising of Lazarus from the dead. These are great moments to pray. And then there were those, what we might call those, those milestone moments. The temptation, the transfiguration, before his arrest and crucifixion, what do we see him doing? We see him fervently praying. And I think by those three designations, I think we can say without, with full confidence that Jesus was a man of prayer. He was a praying man. He often would be up before his disciples, off praying to the Father before the day ever started. That's highlighted in the Gospel of Luke So what do we see here? We see that Jesus is our example. And for this reason, this is why so many of those heavyweight interpreters and commentators and reformers would all say that the prayer life is one of those key litmus tests of a true disciple. A a person that does not pray does not know the Lord. Okay. Or a person that prays only when they need something does not know the Lord. Now, I, I mean, that, that is, there's no equivocation here. That is, that is, why does a disciple pray? Well, first of all, we have an example of Jesus praying to his heavenly father. Not only did he leave us an example, but he left us in a condition of, of being a regenerate person to have the desire, the want to, and the, and the ability to see the need to pray. I see my deficiencies. I see my weaknesses. Lord, I'm unable to accomplish the things that you've called me to do, to be a godly man, to be a godly father, to be a godly husband, to be a godly friend, to just be godly in any circumstance. To be that person that when the test is is in front of us. When the challenge is here, we don't lie to save our skin. We tell the truth because our dependence is not in this circumstance and it's certainly not in people, but in God who holds all things in his hands, right? I mean, it was, I I think it's important um, 
I want to say it was Chrysostom that basically said that prayer is the medicine of a sin-sick soul. Prayer is the medicine of a sin-sick soul. Some of you may have wondered and why this, the power of sin is so strong in your life. And you read scripture. I mean, you, you, you read the verses of the day or the chapter of the day, and yet sin still seems to be prevailing over your thought life and over your affections. And so what's the missing grace? It's prayer. You see, prayer is to accompany the word of God. It's not that we just simply leave it at, Lord, show me the way, show me the truth, but it's, Lord, empower me to live that out. Empower me to obey it. Empower me to fulfill it. Lord, it's not just about showing me what's right. There's, listen, there's a pile of professing believers that can argue and debate truth all day long. But where are they in their prayer life? Where are they, where are they in tapping in to the source itself by prayer? That's, that's what's going on here that's why it's important. That's why we can see Jesus prevailing and, and, and continuing on in his ministry. It's not just that he was superhuman. No, God was holding up his son during this whole process. That's part of that, that covenant before the foundation of the world that, that God would not only give Jesus a body, but he would sustain him in his ministry. He would empower him with the spirit to be able to accomplish and do all that he had called him to do. I can give you another example. In fact, I'm going to give you two and we're going to move on to the next point. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians where he suffered from some physical ailment. Now he believed that that physical ailment was impairing his ministry. Now, we don't know if it was an eye problem or what. I mean, there's a lot of speculation out there. And it really doesn't matter. If the Lord wanted us to know, he would have revealed it to us. The point is, Paul believed it was a problem. Just like we might highlight things in our own life that we think are problems. And so, he tells us in Corinthians that he beseeched the Lord on three different occasions to take away this problem, this issue that he had, so that he could do more for the kingdom of God. And, and he reveals that God said, absolutely not. I will not. Now, you need to go read the text over there in 2 Corinthians. Because what Paul says is he's, what the Lord revealed to him was like, Paul, I'm not going to let pride swell up in your life. I'm not going to let you think that you have accomplished this in your own strength. I'm going to keep this, this malady in place to humble you. 
and to create in you a dependence of me to perform this ministry for my own glory. I'm not taking this away. In fact, I'm going to highlight my own strength or your weakness. And so the answer to Paul's prayer was no. My grace, God said, is sufficient for you. Now, there's a second one that I think is important, and that's the temptation of Peter, where Jesus comes to him in the Gospel of John. He said, look, Peter, Satan has asked if he could tempt you, sift you as wheat. But don't you worry. I am going to pray for you. And what am I going to pray? I'm going to pray that you would be restored And you would be, from that temptation, able to help your brothers by what you learn. I'm uh, going to keep you from falling away. Now, brothers and sisters, I mean, when I tell you prayer, it might be the missing link in your life. It might be the missing link. I mean, it's, you got, I got the illumination of the Spirit, but I don't have the power source. I don't have this source of, of nourishment, of refreshment of soul. And I mean, I, 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 I'm lacking this spiritual vitality to continue on and to see God's glory in all of this. That comes in prayer. So let's look at the second part when Jesus is asked. This is what he says. And of course, he goes through what we know to be the Lord's Prayer. And it's slightly different than the one you find in Matthew. And I hold, I I believe that this is, um, the reason that this different is because I believe Jesus taught his disciples the same thing more than once. Now that's shocker that we have to be taught something more than once, right? But that these are two differing occasions that are being recorded and highlighted that are answering the question. And you can look at those differences yourself when that's not the purpose of me uh, that I have to do that this morning. But notice he says that when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. I'm just gonna highlight these petitions or these uh, uh, the prayer itself in some ways. Notice the condition there of the prayer is that he, he has to be father. There has to be a relationship. We're not praying to one God among thousands. We're praying to our father, our spiritual father, our heavenly father. That's first and foremost, and in prayer. That there is a relationship in our prayer life, and it's that of a child. It's it's that of a dependent and a father. That's number one. Hallowed be your name. you know, that we would understand that by God's grace, God would be set apart in our own lives 
but not stop there. Hallowed be thy name. Lord, may your name, may your person be hallowed in me. May I recognize your glory and may the world also know it. Isn't it a key feature to the disciples in all the scriptures is that what? They know God and they want him to be known. Okay? They know God and they want God to be known. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Man in his rebellion brought in this kingdom of darkness and that's why Satan is the God of this age. He is the God of the lawless. He's the God of this world in the sense of its world's ungodly as antichrist systems. But when we pray and we ask and when we beseech the Lord that his kingdom come, what we're saying is, Lord, destroy that kingdom. We're not asking God to bring his kingdom into this world to coexist with Satan's kingdom. There's no coexistence between light and darkness and good and evil. Justice and injustice are not friends. And it's that this kingdom of God must come in us. And it must also, we pray for it to come into this world. But certainly with us first. And give us this day our daily bread that we'd be totally dependent upon him for our nourishment today, to meet our needs today. Now, we wouldn't spend a ton of energy worried about next week's supper and just exhaust ourselves. You know, have you ever exhausted yourself with worry? You know, it does. It's exhausting. People that worry a lot are, are tired. They're worn out. Why? Because all they are doing is they're expending all of this vibrant, glorious, beautiful energy they've been given for today, and they've, they've, they've spent it on something that's never even come or happened yet. And they're bankrupt when it comes today because there's things today that you should be doing. There's things today that you can do that would, in what, enhance your walk with Jesus as a disciple. Prayer is part of that. If prayer is not a part of your spiritual toolbox, are you a disciple of Jesus? Can you really claim to be his disciple what is a disciple? Someone who, someone who adheres to Jesus. They come together, what? Same interests, same goals. To believe the same things. And forgive us our sins as we ourselves are also, also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I mean, uh, just highlight, I mean, one of the reasons Christians are, are able to forgive is because they've been forgiven. 
because their own hearts have been relieved of that, that spiritual sinful indebtedness to God and because they've been relieved of it, because that's been taken away, they have the freedom to forgive others and the joy to forgive others because they recognize that what they're forgiving of others doesn't come close to what God has forgiven them. I, I mean, I have literally talked to people that actually believed it was a gift for, to have their forgiveness. You ought to be thankful you have my forgiveness, as if it was God himself talking. Wow, arrogant. Arrogant. Dangerous ground right there. Possibly not a Christian. Because when the Christian is forgiven and they recognize the knowledge of that debt comes to mind, how can I withhold the penny you owe me when the Lord has forgiven me of the millions? You see. And that's why the desire and readiness, I'm not talking about spreading forgiveness like mayonnaise on something. I'm talking about the desire and the willingness to forgive biblically demonstrates that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, okay? And the last one there is, and lead us not into temptation, and that is if the Lord chooses to allow us to fall into temptation, he preserves us, he's our protector, that's what a king does as our mediator, but if he so chooses to allow us to, to in order to uh, remedy us of our sin, to allow us to fall into even more sin, that it would train us and it would make us hate it so that we come back to his grace. Uh, J.C. Riles has a great uh, he put a little book of prayer together and he's got a great section in there on how believers begin to backslide and w one common denominator of all backsliding Christians is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. All backsliding Christians suffer from prayerlessness. But that... We are dependent upon God in due season to do what? Save us. Salvage us from ourselves. Heal our spiritual maladies, our sicknesses. To bring to bear. Listen, you know, listen. I, I, there's a lot of people that read the Bible. There's a lot of, go on YouTube. There's a lot of atheists that read the Bible. It's not effectual to them unto salvation. See, there's a power that comes with his elect that is so that when we read it, we're able to glean from the word of God its saving power. It's saving power. It's different. It's the same words, but it has that spiritual power powerful, effectual connection to us because the Spirit is working in us. That vital connection with God that comes to us for our eyes to see and understand and to be glad that we know these things. 
that this is not just some encyclopedia that sits on the shelf and we pull it out and go, here's a, here's a book that's got some really good moral things in it. Let's look at seeing what it says. No, this is the book of life. This is the will of God put into print. This is where God revealed himself in a saving way. This is where the life of Jesus is written out. Maybe we don't appreciate it enough. Have a high esteem of the word of God. And that's why you have all of this stuff floating around. It all comes around in seasons. Well, you know why the book of Enoch is not in the Bible. All of these Gnostic gospels, it comes around every year. There's this popular season for all of these emails to go out and go, I can't trust the Bible because, you know, they took out the good stuff. It's a conspiracy. I hope we don't fall for such foolishness. There's a spiritual connection between the word of God, the revelation of God, and the disciple that comes through prayer. Well, what about the parable? Well, you can see this is why Jesus taught the parable. He says, and then he said to them in verse five, suppose one of you has a friend who goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now, I don't know about you. When I read this and I read some of these commentators like, well, what a selfish friend who doesn't want to get up and give this guy three loaves. Well, I can tell you, I thought, well, I guess I'm selfish. Because if you came knocking on my door at 12 o'clock at night for some bread, I'd be like, what is wrong with you? And I think that's the point that Jesus is making here. He's like, this, this is an absurd thing. This is an offensive. I'm going I'm to couch this in a scenario of just improbable. This is, look, you would not do this. But here it is. And I'm going to, he's going to highlight it to set before us, here's what I want you to do with your heavenly father. You see that there's a need, there's a desire, and there's someone who can fulfill that desire. That's what the parable's all about. There's a need, somebody shows up at a friend's house at midnight, unannounced, He's un, the friend is unprepared to host his friend. There's a desire. I got to go talk to my other friend to see if I can get some bread to help feed this friend. And there is, of course, the remedy of the problem, which is, He's so offensive and so obnoxious in his request. He's so unrelenting in his demand for bread. What does the neighbor do? He gives it. Now, let, let's read through there, and I'm going to give you just two things as we close this morning. Because I think it, it's important just to see the prayer, hear it, and then I'm going to address those two things that we need to look for in our own lives. 
And so what does he do? He says, from inside, he answers. He doesn't even want to open the door. Inside, he answers, do not bother me. The door has already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you then, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, he does know him, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, what do we see here? There is this, this, this first encouragement that we have to pray, brothers and sisters, is first of all, do I have a strong desire for good? That's number one. Yeah, you may say, oh, no, I want to do good. No, 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 no. Do you have a strong desire for good? I didn't ask you if you want to do good because I expect the answer to be, of course. My question is, do you have a strong desire to do good. So look at the, the desire that the man has for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. What's the desire? My friend has showed up. I'm supposed to be hospitable. I want to be hospitable. I'm going to be hospitable. And I'm going to go get some bread. You wait right here. I'll be right back. His strong desire to do good. This hospitality is the focus in this parable. But beloved, that's why I mentioned to you early on, what is it in your life? What is it you want to accomplish? What is it you want to see God do in you? That's a good thing. And yet my question to you is, do you desire it enough to be persistent about it? Maybe you need to overcome hate, lust, greed, laziness. Maybe it's some form of sin of that nature that you need to overcome that, that you say, well, I overcome it here and there, but I don't really, I've never really had the victory over it where there's been a, a long enough season where I actually felt like I've been liberated from it. I mean, obviously these lusts are always remaining in seed form. The only thing that beats them back is the spirit of God and the grace of God, the word of God. The strong desire that we see in the parable is that my friend has shown up. He has come to my house for protection. He's out traveling. He stopped by. He knows I'm going to take care of him. I don't have anything to defeat him. I'm going to go get it. Now, I'm going to add this because it's assumed. I won't be denied either. That's my point about it being a strong desire. What is it you want to see overcome in your life that you've been toying with for years and you've never been serious about it? You say, well, how do you know, Pastor? Have you prayed about it? Have you played vigilantly about it? Have you persisted the Lord? Are you beating on the pearly gates and going, Lord, you're not answering my prayer. I need this dead in my life. I need to grow. I need to... Lord, I need you to work in me. I want to do good. So that's that. We see this strong desire also in that willingness to go beat on his friend's door until he gets what he wants. 
That, that's strong, isn't it? How many friends do you have that you would do that to? Hmm. Okay. Now, in the South, you might get shot. I don't know. You've got to be careful. But, what, but you, you see it, right? I mean, you see it in the parable. You see how this strong desire is, I'm going to take care of you. You're my friend. You stop by my place. I'm going to be hospitable, and I'm going to go, and I'm willing to be obnoxious to get what I need to feed you. That's what we're talking about. Now, what's the second one? The second one is just as important as the first one. So what is it? It's confidence. It's confidence. The point that Jesus is going to make after verse 8 is he's going to sort of open up. He's knocking on the door and he's not taking no for an answer because I'm confident that my friend is going to be perturbed enough with me to give me what I want. And so how does Jesus respond to that? When I say confidence, brothers and sisters, listen, I had a, I had a, um, a seminary professor and, and he wrote a book on prayer, an amazing book on prayer, just a short little paperback book on, on his experiences with prayer and just highlighting how God had answered prayer after prayer after prayer after prayer in his life. And it was amazing. It was exciting. It was stimulating. It would really would encourage you to pray, but I mean, he, and he said this and, and it always stuck with me and, and I, you know, it's kind of one of those cheesy Christian cliches if you're in the wrong circle, right? But he said, if you pray and ask God for rain, you need to walk out with an umbrella. Because why are you asking God for something if you do not believe he's not going to answer it? And that's what James says. That's what James says about prayer in his little epistle. He says, you have not because you ask not. And that when you do ask, you ask for all the wrong motives. You ask for all the wrong reasons. That's why you don't have the answer to your prayer. It's the confidence, beloved, that God is going to give you what you are asking for because it's a good thing that you ask for. It's according to his will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where is it not the will of God for your sanctification? Your growth in grace. Your knowledge to increase of the, of the person and work of Christ. The glory of God and his providence, his creation. And this is what Jesus says. So I say, verse 9, and I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Now what is it about that verse that, what is it about this verse that, <laughs> is to, in some way, keep you from praying. Now, everything about that verse is what? Pray. Why? 
Because when you ask, it will be given to you. When you seek the Lord, you will find him. When you knock, it will be open to you. For whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, it will be opened. That's the incitement. That's the enforcement. That's the confidence that Jesus is saying, you might be lacking. You might be lacking. That when I go before the Lord and I have determined these things with the good in God's sight, these are things that are proper in God's sight, I'm going to beseech the Lord for them and I shall in confidence wait on my God to move in his timing. And as far as I'm concerned, I will get what I ask for. I will find what I'm seeking and the door that I am wanting to go through will be opened. And now he enforces it again. So he doesn't even stop there. I want you to see the layers of enforcement that Jesus goes through to to bolster your confidence. He says in verse 11, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by a son for a fish. Will uh, Will you not give him a snake instead of a fish? Will he? No. For if he asks for an egg, will he not give him a uh, a scorpion, will he? I mean, I mean, we we would laugh. We laugh at that. We go, that was silly. Of course, not. and that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Jesus is again adding another layer of confidence. Going, then why do you think you can go to your heavenly Father, ask for good and righteous things, and He give you something that's bad instead? That's that's what Jesus is saying. Now here's the here's. This is one of those important verses in this whole text. And this is what we will end with, verse 13. He says, if you then, being evil, that is compared to God, we're evil. Compared to God, we're selfish. We don't give anything good. We don't give anything abundance out of our own sustenance, do we? I mean, compared to God, we are stingy. He says, if you then, being evil, how to give good gifts to your children, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That is, if you earthly people know how to give good gifts when you're asked for them, how much more? your heavenly father. Now, I want you to let that sink in. These are arguments against your confidence, right? I mean, these are arguments against you having lack of confidence. Now, that doesn't mean you walk around here oblivious to the reality, but it means that when we, when we seek the Lord in prayer, that's understanding his will, the circumstances, Lord, we seek your face. Here's what we desire We begin with ourselves and our own sanctification. I can tell you the things that God cares about is you, your heart, what you think, what you believe, how you relate to others, right? How you respond to others, he cares about. I'm going to give you a personal testimony, and this is is what we're going to close with. When I became a Christian... Well, growing up, I grew up in a, uh, a home that was very much um, 
it wasn't it was not uh emotionally friendly all right it was um you know you, you i give you something to cry about kind of home you don't cry you know, you, you're going to do what I tell you to do. You're going to do it how I tell you to do it. If I say jump, it's going to be how high. Hey, and all of those things were a blessing, I'm going to tell you. I needed every bit of it. But when I became a Christian, I lacked sensitivity for others. I lacked understanding and feeling. I lacked, I lacked a willingness to connect and understand that some people are hurting. And, and it's not always about, hey, toughen up, kiddo. Because that's the, what I was used to hearing. And so I began to pray. You know, I, I thought it was unbecoming of a Christian to be like that. I mean, Jesus is not like that. So I began to pray and ask God, shape my emotions. Lord, give me compassion for my brothers and sisters. Give me sensitivity. I'm unable to weep with those who are hurting because I, I just think they ought to get tougher. And that's the way I would talk to them. Not out of meanness. It's not because I didn't love them. It's just because I, I really just didn't relate to them. And over time, God answered my prayers. And it wasn't that long into the future where I would literally find myself weeping with those who were hurting and comforting them and just sitting with them and listening to them, understanding their hurt and their pain and their, their affliction. And that helped me rejoice even greater with the ones who are joyful. Not to mention that the Lord gave me three daughters, and I think that had something to do with it too, but I didn't know that at the time. My point is, brothers and sisters, I know you've experienced some of these things too. What do you want that's a good thing? Do you want it strongly enough that you will beseech heaven until you get what you want? And it's good. It's not a bad thing. And have the confidence that God is going to answer your prayer. That's what we need to walk away with this morning. Let's pray. Now, Father, we have spent this last hour wading through your precious word, looking at its context, Lord, and ending on these two important notes of Lord having a good and strong desire and having confidence, Lord, that when we come to you, you care. You care for us. You're a loving Father. Now, Father, I pray that we would all be encouraged to pray more. I know there are things in every one of our lives that we could pray more about and ask you for. And you desire that. There's nothing in the scriptures that tell us not to pray when it comes to asking you for good and, and, and holy things, good things. And Father, impress that upon us. And as we come now to this Lord's Supper, 
Remind us of the sacrifice of Christ. Remind us that we stand not on ground that we created by our own good works, but that we stand on ground that was given to us by Christ. It is by grace that we stand and have all of our fruit. And Lord, in this life and all our vitality and energy and Lord, all that we possess flows from you through him to us. Lord, let us be reminded of that as we take this supper. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.